Instead of this being spring forward Sunday, it's become winter forward Sunday, amen. 29 degrees, up in the can this morning, well north above Nine Mile Road, but it feels great uh, in here today. Daylight savings time Sunday. You know, I crawled into the bed at 9.30, regular time last night. Then I read myself to sleep, woke up feeling refreshed at five o'clock regular time this morning. But I do feel good today, and I hope you do too. Judy told me today, she said, you know, I think, I told her, I said, maybe I need to give the people a seventh inning stretch about halfway through the sermon today. And my precious wife looked at me and she said, why don't you just stop at seven innings today? (laughs) And I said, woman, submit. (laughs) I'm excited to be with you this morning, excited to have those of you that are watching with us in our live online broadcast today. And we're in Ephesians chapter number six this morning as we continue our series on the victorious Christian life. Uh, No greater passage in the Bible do you have uh, concerning the subject of overcoming and vanquishing and being victorious and living victoriously uh, than in the very famous ending of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're gonna take a few minutes and dwell there. As we talk today about the subject of spiritual warfare, uh, something that I think that we need to understand if we're going to live in victory. This is a series about victory, and so we're gonna live in victory. We surely need to understand what we typically refer to as spiritual warfare. The Bible has much to say about that. In fact, when you think about it, just the concept of victory. I mean, if there's gonna be a victory of any kind, That by itself implies a contest, a fight, a struggle. We contend in some kind of way. And the Bible teaches that we're in one of those fights from the very moment that we become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the moment of salvation, there is this epic struggle that takes place in the invisible realm, what Paul calls the heavenly places or the heavenlies, the spiritual sphere that's not visible. In fact, even surrounding this worship service today, it'd probably raise the hair on the back of your necks if you could see what was taking place right now between the forces of evil and the forces of good, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, between truth and error, We call that struggle spiritual warfare, and it's very real. And you know, coming through the battles of this life, spiritual battles that we face every day as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, means that you have to recognize the struggle, and not only recognize that there is a struggle, but that not only is the battle very real, but you have to be properly outfitted to fight that. So you don't just walk into a battle casually. You don't just find yourself in the midst of hostilities and, and, and do so flippantly or without thought. No, you better make sure that you're properly outfitted, properly engaged to take on what Paul calls the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. <clears throat> and this is the very theme of the Apostle Paul in his conclusion to one of the greatest 
pieces of literature that you find anywhere in the Bible, and that is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a great and a very significant passage indeed. So we're going to take a look this morning, beginning in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10. Here's your first inning stretched as we stand up to honor the reading of the Word of God. The words will be on the screen if you need it. If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like to follow along in a printed copy of the Word, your church Bibles need to be open to page 920, 920, and uh, you'll find right where we are. I'm going to begin reading here in verse number 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on <clears throat> the breath, breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is the word of the living God. May God add his rich and wonderful blessing to its reading and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you, church family. Y'all can be seated this morning. <clears throat> Spiritual battles are absolutely inevitable for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who live according to the word of God and who walk in the power and strength of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know it already, you should. The closer you get to Jesus and the more closely that you walk with Jesus, the more fierce those battles are going to become. And whether you live in victory or in the agony of defeat depends largely on your strategy as it pertains to engaging the enemies we face in this life in the battles of this life. This is what Paul's talking about here in this very familiar passage of Scripture. And we're going to take it bit by bit this morning as we see Paul outlining three very important and necessary steps that will lead to victory in the spiritual battles that you and I face every day of our life. The first of these three steps involves knowing the enemy we face. You need to identify who the real enemy actually is. And the real enemy in our times of difficulty, in our times of discouragement, our real enemy in the low points of life is not those difficult people that you often want to point the finger at and blame. If only I didn't have the boss I had, and if I only had, didn't have this nagging relative that I have to deal with all the time, or if I didn't have this nasty person who lives across the street making life difficult for me, then I'd be able to live in victory. But that's not true. Your real enemy isn't those difficult people, and your real enemy isn't those difficult circumstances that came upon you out of nowhere. If only this hadn't happened, or if only that had happened, then I could live 
with confidence and in victory. No, that's not true either because your real enemy is not difficult people and your real enemy is not difficult, unexpected circumstances. Your real enemy is a person. Paul identifies him here in this passage twice using two different phrases. He first of all identifies him as the devil and then later on he identifies him with the adjective phrase the evil one. Now we know him most of the time by his proper name which is Satan. And Satan is the real enemy, amen. That's the real enemy that we need to be worried about most of all because Satan is the commander-in-chief of the forces that operate in this unseen spiritual sphere. See, it's one thing to face off with, with people in the flesh that you can actually see and outmaneuver in some way, but it's another thing to take on an invisible enemy you can't see with the naked eye. That requires a measure of spiritual skill that can only be attained through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ and time spent in the Word of God. Satan is this commander-in-chief of these forces that operate behind the scenes in this world system that form the very fabric of evil, the evil in which we live. Paul says, we wrestle not, we struggle not, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against <clears throat> principalities and powers against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And don't forget, a host is an army, which means there's a bunch of them. And so the enemy is led by the devil himself. And it's a battle that takes place in the unseen world, a battle over our heart and over our soul. What we call spiritual warfare could easily be defined or described very simply as the conflict that exists between the forces of God and the forces of evil. And because we belong in part as blood-bought children of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're part of the forces of God. And that puts us on the team that wears the white hats, amen? And so because we belong to God, we're a part of the battle. We're a part of the forces of good that battle against the forces of Satan in this world as we know it. Now, time doesn't allow this morning for a full biography of the beast today, but suffice it to say that the devil is a rather controversial character, even among Christian people for that matter. Many people just want to caricature the devil. They want to reduce the devil to an animated feature on a Disney cartoon in some way. They want to paint him as nothing more than a fantasy He's the old actor Vincent Price in a red satin jumpsuit with a handlebar mustache carrying a pitchfork and having a pointed end on his tail. And many people today, in fact, most people, even a lot of spiritual people, see the devil not as real but as a, sig a symbol of all that is wrong and all that is anti-God in the world. But may I make a statement here today? The devil is no figment of your imagination. The devil cannot be reduced to a cartoon strip in the Sunday morning newspapers. He's very real. He's our principal adversary, and the Bible teaches he's armed and he's very dangerous. Scripture refers to him in all kinds of different ways. It refers to him as a serpent. That's the way we're first introduced to him in Genesis chapter 3. He's referred to as a dragon. He's referred to as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil, the Bible says, is a murderer. 
He's a thief. He is a tempter. He is a liar. And he is the father of lies. There's all kinds of adjectives that the Bible uses to describe our principal adversary. The word devil itself translates from the Greek diabolos. We get our English word diabolical from it, and all of us know what that means. That's a word that literally, it's a compound word that means literally to throw through, to throw through. Get the idea of throwing a wrench, a wrench rather, into a system of machinery. And when you throw something that's foreign into something that's designed to function in a certain way, it can clog up the gears. And the devil been clogging up the gears of God's perfect design from the very beginning of time. The word devil is a word that means disruptor. And that's what he's done from the very beginning as he shows up in the garden to tempt the first couple. He's disrupted the plan and the purpose of God, at least for a season. And that's what he does in your life as well as mine. From the moment you confess faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, the devil makes it his mission in life to disrupt you, to disrupt the relationships of your life, to disrupt your spiritual life. He makes it his mission to disrupt, uh, disrupt God's plan for your life. And that's why Paul warns us here in Ephesians 6 of what he calls the schemes of the devil. The King James Bible uses the word wiles. We, don't, uh, we talk about somebody being wily, like wily e. coyote, the wily coyote. That just means the scheming coyote, the cunning cry, uh, coyote. The Bible teaches that the devil engaged in cunning craftiness when he appeared before Adam and Eve there in the garden. And so he is a disruptor who manipulates through cunning craftiness, deceitful scheming, the Bible says. He makes it his mission to disrupt God's plan and God's plan for your life. And that's why Paul makes it very clear here that the principal mission of the devil uh, is as a disruptor. Nobody says it better than A.T. Robertson, the great Southern Baptist Greek scholar of several generations ago. A.T. Robert, uh, Robertson says, the devil's purpose is the ruin of mankind, Satan wants all of us. And he's absolutely right with that statement. So living with victory means, first of all, knowing that you have an enemy and knowing who the real enemy is, it is our enemy, <clears throat> the devil, our principal adversary. But not only that, Paul reminds us here that as we engage the enemy, having identified him properly, we need secondly to recognize the source of our strength. You need to recognize the true source of your strength. You can engage the enemy, even having identified him as this great fallen angel known as the devil, the ruler of this world system of evil as we know it. But you need to recognize where your strength to engage him in the battle actually comes from and where it doesn't. Part of the reason so many believers, I think, live in defeat is, 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 is because not only do they misidentify the enemy, not only are they trying to fight the wrong enemies, but when they do recognize what, who the true enemy is, they try to fight him in, in their own strength, which is always a bad move. Did you know there's never the first command in the Bible that tells you and me as born-again believers to go out and attack the devil? Not one. The Bible says what? Resist the devil. That's what it said. 
It says resist him. It doesn't say go out and attack him. And it's a good thing it doesn't say that because you know why? You'll lose. You got no chance. The devil ain't any more afraid of you than Goliath was of David. And we know good things happen there and good things happen as you face off with the devil. But just know, he's not a scare to you. Not in any way, shape, or form. He's got your number. He knows where every, he knows you better than you know you. He knows where the weak links in the chain exist. And he'll go straight to them every time. No, here's one thing you need to take home and you always need to remember this. The only person that the devil is afraid of is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when you engage the real enemy known as the adversary of the devil, <clears throat> you better engage him in what Paul calls the mighty power of God. He tells us here, beginning in verse 10, be strong, and then what are the next three words out of his mouth? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his mighty power. And then he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Not an armor, not battle fatigues of your own concocting, but put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, and having done all, having put on the whole armor of God, now being prepared to fight in the strength of God, having done all, stand firm. In fact, that's a good place to note that four times in this passage, did you notice it as we were reading it? Four times in this passage, stand, stand, withstand, stand. That's the principal command. Not go out and attack, but properly outfit yourself and then stand firm in the strength of the Lord. That's exactly what the children of Israel were told to do when they came facing the Red Sea. There they were, all two million of them led by Moses. They had a charging Egyptian cavalry coming from their rear. They had mountains on either side of them and they had a wide open sea in front of them. They were by definition totally hemmed in. And they could have turned around and charged, I guess, picking up sticks and rocks along the way to battle against iron chariots, it would have been a disaster. Moses instead turns to them and says what? Stand still. Stand still and the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So notice that's the principal command here. Stand, stand, withstand, stand. Stand firm. And you stand not in your own reserves, but in the strength of the Lord. And that, by the way, brothers and sisters, is why you need to make sure this and every other day you're climbed up on that altar of dedication to God. Because that's where the strength comes from. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's why, too, you need to make sure that as you're on that altar of dedication before God, this and every other day of your life, you are seeking to be filled with the Spirit. Seems like I've heard that somewhere before. Be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because that's where the strength comes from. If you're going to battle the adversary of the devil, you better be full of the Holy Spirit when you do it because it's the only way you'll be able to stand firm. What's one of the great promises of the Bible that people go to over and over and over again? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. 
What if Paul had just put a period there? You'd have been pretty cocksure. I can do all things. But he doesn't say that. The qualifier is the most important part of the verse. I can do all things, say it with me, through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. That's where the strength comes from. I can do all things. What that really communicates, because there's some things you can't do, even in the strength of the Lord. You can't survive a fall off the Empire State Building doing it in the name of Christ. What Paul is saying there, if you read the full context, I can withstand any and every situation through Christ who strengthens me. That's really what he's communicating. I can make it through anything. I can make it through COVID, through Christ who strengthens me. I can make it through that nasty neighbor, through Christ who strengthens me. I can make it through the turmoil at the office, through Christ who strengthens me. I can make it in this chaotic, upside down world which is growing crazier by the moment, through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you have to recognize the source of your strength. It ain't you. It's Christ in you. That is what the Bible calls the hope of glory. And never forget it. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. That's a good place for an amen or a hand clap. Put those hands together if you're gonna clap. Are you with me so far? Say amen. You need to recognize your real enemy. You need to recognize the source of your strength. But how do we fight? How do we fight in the strength of the Lord and his mighty power? Well, Paul addresses that next by reminding us of a third necessary step in spiritual warfare. You've got to utilize the proper equipment. If you're going to wage war in the strength of the Lord, you need the proper battle fatigues to do it. Or what some have called gospel clothes. Y'all look so pretty here this morning. But did you put on your gospel clothes before you came to church today? What Tony Evans called one time your Jesus outfit. Y'all got your Jesus outfit on this morning? That's reflected in Paul's second battlefield commandment, which is uh, verse 13 here. Therefore, talking about the strength of the Lord, talking about our adversary, the devil. Therefore, Take up the what? Whole armor of God. Now let me just say the Apostle Paul would have been very familiar with how a Roman soldier would have been outfitted. He saw them all the time when he was ministering in Judea and Jerusalem. I mean, the temple just stood catty corner to the Fortress Antonia barracks and the Fortress Antonia prison there in Jerusalem. So Roman soldiers were on the street coming and going all the time, and of course, Paul was arrested multiple times, and we know that while he was in prison, he was guarded by multiple individuals, both at the door, and then one of them would have been chained to him inside the cell for a number of hours every day. So Paul would have been very uh, aware of the appropriate outfitting of a traditional Roman soldier. He refers to them here, or to that outfitting, as the armor of God, applying the armament of a Roman soldier to certain spiritual pieces of armor that believers are to recognize and then make sure they appropriate. We only have time to briefly mention them today. This would be another one of these passages that would make a very good eight-part sermon series. And one of these days, the Lord willing, we'll go back and we'll dig very deep. <clears throat> there was a P 
Puritan pastor, a British Puritan pastor from Suffolk in the mid 17th centuries that did a series of studies on the whole armor of God. And when he had gotten finished, he put them in written form. And when he was totally finished, his thoughts on Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, took up three volumes, totaling over 1,200 pages and 261 chapters. Just on these 10 verses that we've read together this morning, don't you ever accuse me of being long-winded again the rest of your life. And I'm taking those 1,241 pages from those three volumes and 261 chapters and reducing them now to about 15 minutes today. We'll come back and visit them deeper, or you can get that three-volume work and make it the course of your study for an entire year, and you would profit from it for sure. Let's talk about the full armor of God from 30,000 feet this morning. The first piece of equipment mentioned is the belt of truth. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt is mentioned first of all because it stands at the center of a soldier's uniform. That belt holds everything together. The soldier would take his longer tunic and tuck it into his belt and every other piece of equipment that he had on his body was in some way, shape or form connected to that belt. I mean, most of us guys are still dependent on our belts, our britches fall down if we don't have them properly snug and properly secure. And if your britches fall down or whatever the case might be, you're gonna lose all kinds of mobility. And so the belt is an important piece of spiritual armor, even though it's not made of armor. What stands at the center of a believer's life? Well, Paul makes it very clear. It's what? T-R-U-T-H, which spells what? Truth, truth something the popular culture has made subjective. You define it yourself. You determine what it is. And your truth may be different from my truth, and my truth may be different from your truth, but you just define it any old way you want to, and then live by it, and we'll all be happy-go-lucky, and we'll all just get along in that way. But truth is not subjective. The Bible makes it very clear. The truth is not relevant and subjective. The truth is absolute and totally objective. And when you engage in spiritual warfare, can I just say this morning, you do not want to be wishy-washy about the truth. You will lose, you will live a defeated life unless you have a rock-solid grasp on what truth is. And what is truth? That's the question Pilate looked at Jesus and asked. He did not have a grasp on the truth, and that's why he was a loser. What is truth? Well, Jesus made it very clear. He's the truth. Amen. John 14, 6, I myself and I alone am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then Jesus makes clear in John 8, you can know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. And the truth is Jesus, which means the only way to be set free, the only way to know the objective truth is to know Christ as Savior and Lord because he alone is the truth. Look at how Paul defines it in Ephesians 1, in the beginning of his letter, Ephesians 1, 13. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard, say it out loud, please, the word of truth, and then he defines it, the what? The gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Christ. 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That just means you're saved and you, you became the possession, the very ownership of God. And so Paul defines the gospel or the, the truth as the gospel, the message of the gospel. And make no mistake, Jesus Christ is the gospel. The good news of what God has done for lost and bound up sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so get it down, know it, and then proclaim it. Truth is the message of the gospel about Christ as revealed in scripture. Put on the belt of that truth. Second, Paul mentions the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, verse 14, stand therefore having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now that was the, the, either the, le the leather or sometimes it was made out of metal, the chest piece. And that chest piece, of course, protected the soldier's vital organs, primarily his heart, but all of the vital organs that were uh, potentially um, vulnerable in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And what characterizes a true believer's heart the thing that needs to be protected more than anything else is what Paul calls righteousness. It is the belt of truth. It is the breastplate of righteousness. And that's important because here's the thing. If you're born again, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you have received the gift of righteousness. In fact, that's what you have to have in order to have a relationship with God. You can't work it up yourself. It has to be given to you as a free gift by God's grace and the way that happens is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, where because of your faith in Christ, God does two things. He removes sin from you. He forgives you your sin. And then as he forgives your sin and removes it, the Bible says, as far as east is from the west, at the same time, he gives you the gift of the righteousness of Christ. He takes away what you possess by nature and he gives to you what you are lacking by nature. Does that make sense? The gift of righteousness. And now with the gift of righteousness, we're justified before God. We have standing in the presence of a holy God. And so you better know your identity in Christ or you're not gonna win the battle. See, because your identity in Christ is where your confidence comes from. The devil can't do anything to me. I possess the very righteousness of Christ. Why? Because I possess Christ. He's living within me. What, what can man do to me, the, the Bible says? Nothing. If Christ is in you, nothing of any consequence. And so this is my true identity in Christ. Never forget it or you'll lose your confidence. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. He takes away my sin. He gives me the gift of righteousness. And now what's important is that I never let the enemy convince me that I'm anything other than what the Bible says I am. Righteous and accepted in Jesus Christ. And then with that is my identity, the way I fight the battle is to go out and to live obediently and righteously in a way that honors God in every respect. That's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Third, we're to outfit ourselves with gospel shoes. Gospel shoes. You know, back in the dress for success days, 
When I first started out years ago, right after college in the corporate world, I mean, I had to put the uniform on every day. You know, dark suit, white shirt, blue tie or red tie every single day. But in the Dress for Success days, I was taught also that shoes made the outfit. Every woman in here knows that because y'all owe 1,200 pairs of shoes in your closet. And I know some guys that are a whole lot different. Judy accuses me of having a fetish with shoes. I like shoes. Shoes are a very important part. They were an important part of the soldier's uniform, verse 14. Stand therefore and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Remember, what's the principal command in this passage repeated four times in one word? It's what? Stand. This is where shoes come in very significantly, right? The shoes of the Roman soldier were cleated or spiked. Think of an old, uh, old school golfer's uh, set of shoes that had the old metal spikes in it. That was a Roman soldier's shoes. And that was to ensure proper footing because you needed it. You needed not to worry about sliding or losing your footing and standing firm, particularly when you were marching in formation. If you're on your feet a lot, you know the importance of shoes, particularly if you serve in the military. And so this helps us to stand our ground in Christ with this idea of standing firm in the presence of the enemy. And what is it that helps us to stand our ground? What's the actual piece of armament for a believer? Peace. This condition of peace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's like the breastplate of righteousness. It speaks to who we are as children of God, what our real identity is. So there used to be before we were saved this condition of hostility between us and God because of sin. Not because God didn't love you, but because God hated your sin. And as a holy God, God cannot fellowship with sin. That's the reason you don't have a chance unless God does something for you. And in salvation, not only are you uh, freed from the bondage of sin, not only do you receive the righteousness of Christ that's necessary for you to relate to a holy God, but now the hostilities between you and God are over. Over. Now you are reconciled to God. And that's why one of the greatest verses in the Bible is Romans 5.1. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget your identity. Never forget your true spiritual condition as a child of God. You see, it's the peace of God that belongs to us now. That's why we don't have to be anxious. The command in the Bible, be anxious for nothing, would have no meaning if we didn't have a condition of peace with God, we'd have everything in the world to be anxious about. But this is why you don't have to be anxious. This is why you don't have to rely on drugs or alcohol to help you cope. Because if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of Christ dwells within you. Christ lives within you. You're assured of the presence of Christ. You're assured of the support of Christ. <clears throat> and that perfect peace is more than sufficient to keep you calm in the midst of chaos and confusion in this crazy, mixed-up, upside-down world that we live in today. So lace up those gospel shoes and be confident 
And then you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We're halfway through. Y'all with me so far still? Amen. Fourth, Paul mentions the shield of faith. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the fiery darts, the flaming darts of the evil one. There was a short shield, a round shield, and then there was the long shield. This is the long shield that Paul is mentioning, the one that the soldiers carried in formation with one another. And they could literally cover their whole body for the most part. They could get their whole body behind it and then they could lock it in with the soldier next to them as they marched out in battle formation and it was pretty much an impenetrable force at that point when they did that. The shield represents faith here. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes that represent the gospel of peace. But the shield represents faith And what is faith? Can I just put it this way? The opposite of doubt. The opposite of doubt. Nothing will make you more vulnerable as you engage the spiritual host of wickedness in battle than doubt. What James called what? Double-mindedness. That's what Paul earlier in this letter in Ephesians called giving the devil a foothold. You want to give the devil a foothold? Give him just enough to have entree into your life. Walk with the Lord and doubt. And that'll do it every time. The shield of faith is directly tied to the belt of truth. Because what is faith? Faith is the practical demonstration of the truth that you say you believe. So you can't divorce truth from faith. See, it's one thing to come in here and say, oh, I believe this, and I believe that, and I believe this, and I'm going to sing about it, and I'm going to testify to it, and I'm going to say amen when the preacher says something that I agree with. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to go out and face off with the devil over matters of truth. That's how you know what you really believe, not what you do in here with it on Sunday mornings, what you do out there with it from the moment you leave here on Sunday mornings. Because what's going to happen when you all leave here today Flaming arrows are coming. Aren't you glad you got up and come to church this morning? Amen. I mean, not only arrows are coming, arrows that are on fire. And that's meant to just create chaos and confusion in your life. You know, those old movies that I watch when they fire flaming arrows, it's to set something on fire. It's not necessarily to kill anybody. It's to set something on fire so that they're distracted. That's what the devil will do. He'll distract you. He can't kill you because Christ is in you, man. God's got a plan for your life and he's gonna execute it. But boy, the devil can make you busy and the devil can get you off course and the devil can distract you every which way from Sunday. And so you have to be very careful to carry that shield of faith because only the shield of faith, the Bible says, can deflect the fiery missiles of the evil one. And then fifth, there's the helmet of salvation. The helmet, of course, protects what part of the body? The head, that's right. And the head is the source of our thinking. It's the source of our reason. And what distinguishes this piece, I think, is that Paul is saying it's the helmet of salvation. But I think he's using salvation not in terms of what we now possess, though that, I'm sure that can be applied, 
I think he's using salvation in the future sense, what theologians call final salvation, which for us is the hope of heaven, that Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he's going to get us out of this mess and place us into a perfect existence that will never perish, fall, fade away, incorruptible in every degree. That final salvation that is still yet to come is, I think, what Paul is talking about here when he refers to the helmet of salvation. Paul uses the same imagery in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8. Notice that verse with me. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, in other words, the light, since we're children of God, let us be sober, sober, having put on for a helmet the what? The hope of salvation. You see that? The hope of salvation. And that's got us looking forward, doesn't it? All of us who have been born again, who are saved, still have a hope for salvation because we still haven't possessed it in its fullness yet. We're still this side of heaven, does that make sense? And so when you put on that, that helmet of salvation, you go out to fight the devil, it is in the confidence that I have absolute assurance that I belong to God today and that God's salvation is quite capable of protecting and preserving me all the way until I step foot in the eternal kingdom called the new heaven and the new earth. See, you won't fight very effectively if you lose your assurance. If you're not sure you're going to heaven when this life is over, you will make easy pickings of the enemy. The hope of salvation is where our confidence comes from. I love the way Paul says it in Philippians 1.6, very familiar verse. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Christ come again, comes again to usher in the kingdom, I'm as good as already there because Christ has saved me today. That's the helmet of salvation and that's where your confidence comes from. Now the final piece of Paul's armor is what he calls the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, this piece is the principal active piece of armor. It's the, it's the principal offensive piece. Every other piece, fundamentally, is a defensive piece of armor. The Word of God can be used both, offensively and defensively. And this is so important. I am going to preach a standalone message on the Word of God. And we'll do that for no extra charge if you come back next Sunday when your bodies have adjusted to the new time scheme. So we are going to talk more about this. I'm going to just mention it today. But man, I'm telling you, that sword of the Spirit is fixed to the belt of truth. Because what's the source of our truth? This book right here. Right here. You cannot know the truth apart from knowing the Word of God. Firmly fixed to the belt of truth. That sword is the Bible. And the Bible is the indispensable weapon when it comes to doing business with our adversary. The Scottish preacher Thomas Guthrie said one time, rob us of our Bible and our sky has lost its sun. Isn't that a great statement? These are the battle fatigues necessary to overcome the schemes and the fiery darts of the devil. The truth 
of the gospel, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, peace with God that passes all human understanding, an obedient faith that works out the truth in practical ways in everyday life without doubt, the assurance of my final salvation all the way to the kingdom of heaven and the living and enduring word of God that we call the Bible. That, brothers and sisters, is God's spiritual armor. He supplies it, but let me make a statement this morning. If you're gonna live in victory, you have to not only be able to know God has supplied me this armor, you have to make a decision you're gonna put it on. Because God's not gonna outfit, he's provided it for you, but you've gotta be the one who straps it on. I don't know about you, but <clears throat> I love submarine movies. Going all the way back to the 50s, Robert Mitchum in The Enemy Below. One of the best ever. Hunt for Red October. Can I get an amen this morning? Crimson Tide. Somebody say Roll Tide. This Roll Tide. Denzel in Crimson Tide. It doesn't get any better than that, man, I'm telling you. If you've never seen Das Boot, which is a German film, uh, you'll never get in a submarine, ever. Scare the life out of you. World War II epic picture. That's the thing about submarines. Sometimes in those movies, and maybe even in real life, they get in trouble. And you know, submarines, multi-billion dollars in their engineering, they're designed to go deep. But there's a stopping point. And if they go deeper than their design, that multi-billion dollar attack instrument can be crushed like a tin can. Sometimes you see that reflected in those movies. You know, one of the things that's always amazed me, though, is when a submarine with all that technology and all that sophistication gets down to dangerous level where everybody on board's worried about being crushed, all around that submarine are these little fishes that are having a time of their lives. They're not worried about being crushed. They're looking for food. And let me tell you, you can go all the way down where there is no light whatsoever. And there's a crazy looking fish, you know, just like there's a bunch of crazy looking Baptists. There's a bunch of crazy looking fish down there swimming around. And they're not worried about being crushed. What's the difference between the two? One is prepared for an adverse environment and one is not. And whether or not you're prepared to face the invisible host of wickedness in the heavenly places depends on your conditioning, doesn't it? Some are properly outfitted and some are not. And brothers and sisters, the difference between the two is victory or defeat. Put on the whole armor of God and having done all, stand firm. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.